Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. You'll find the uh, notes in the bulletin. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 8. And I'd like to begin by reading our text. We're going to take two weeks to go over these 15 verses. I'd like to read the text in full from Luke chapter 8. Please read with me. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering, and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed, and as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it, and some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture, and some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear. When the disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe For a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience." This is one of the more well-known parables of Jesus, and we aren't really going to look at it much this morning. That'll be next week. We'll focus primarily on the parable of the sower. What we've got to look at this week in in Luke 8, 1 through 15, part 1, is how Luke sets the context and how Jesus explains the purposes for parables. I mean, have you ever wondered that? Why does Jesus speak in parables? He's he's very well known for it. We're about to begin a series of parables. Luke will have more parables. Matthew has lots of parables. Jesus is known for speaking in parables. And yet I think the reason he does it, often what people think, is wrong. We're going to look at that. Why, Why does Jesus speak this way to these people? What does that tell us about who God is and his purposes? And what does that tell us about ourselves? We're going to see that as we look and set up and understand the context of the parable of the sower. Now, we've reached in Luke another signal point for a shift or a change or um, a next movement, if you will, of the plot, the narrative. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 8 kind of form a summary statement. It's similar, in fact, if you turn back to chapter 4. When we begin Jesus' ministry after the testing and tempting of the devil in the wilderness, in Luke 4, verse 14, he introduces Jesus appearing and doing ministry with this statement. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Now that's a summary of what follows in the next few chapters. We are going to see where we actually saw the report spreading, and Jesus teaching here and there and everywhere as he traveled about. This is, a, this is setting now, we're moving into a section. And it ended last week with a sinful woman who was forgiven. And now we get a very similar summary statement. And so when Luke does this, we want to stop and say, okay, why does he do this? 
What's being developed? What's different? Why interrupt the narrative when you will find out Jesus is doing pretty much the same thing in pretty much the same location, but there are some subtle differences. So let's look at the first three verses, the development of Jesus' Galilean ministry. Soon afterward, and the after would be these events, Jesus dining with Simon, or maybe even the whole larger paracope of the healing of the widow's son and the the discussion about John the Baptist, because we really saw how Jesus' dinner with Simon, the sinful woman, really served to illustrate, to give a concrete example of everything Jesus was saying about John the Baptist and about the warnings not to be offended by him. Regardless, whether it just refers back to the previous event or the previous chapter, soon afterwards, he went through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So here's a summary statement of what Jesus is doing. I want to look at three things. Again, I want to look at the focus of what Jesus is doing. It's so easy for the miracles to grab our attention. It can be so easy for Jesus' mighty works to be what we zoom in on. He he raised a dead son. He healed a servant from afar. He touched a leper and cleansed him. But again and again and again in Luke's gospel, on Jesus' own lips, he identifies himself first and foremost as a preacher, as a herald. He was going about the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news, the kingdom of God. What was the focus of Jesus' ministry? It was the gospel of the kingdom of God. Gospel is simply the Greek word for good news, euangelion. So it says the good news, you could just as easily translate it, the gospel of the kingdom of God. If you turn back to the first introductory section, the one I said that was very similar to this in Luke chapter 4, that's precisely how Jesus enters the scene. If you remember, he goes to his hometown in Nazareth. He goes to the synagogue. And as is the custom, a man stands up to read. He stands up. The scroll of Isaiah is given to him. And he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. Look at this in verse 17 of chapter 4. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. He has has Christed me, Messiahed me. That word Christ, anointed, Messiah, is just Greek, English, and Hebrew for the same thing. The Spirit of the Lord has anointed me to do what? To proclaim good news or the gospel, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year the Lord's favor. So, so he's to proclaim three things, and he's actually to do something as well. He's to actually accomplish the setting free. And Jesus is going to come, and he's going to do just that. He's going to proclaim, and he's going to preach, and then on the cross, he will accomplish a salvation. This is how Jesus identifies himself. He says, you want to know who I am? To his hometown. I am the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. I am the one who is anointed. I'm the Lord's Christ, and I'm here to proclaim good news. Now, his, his hometown didn't like that once they understood that in order for this to be good news, they had to be willing to recognize that they themselves were the poor, the captive, the blind, the oppressed. And as Jesus explains this in the next few verses and makes it clear, look, God doesn't owe you any favors. God is just as willing, just as likely to send his grace to a Syrian leprous general, Syrophoenician woman, widow, as he is to send it to you. You've got to come on a level playing field. The, the, the The ground at the foot of the cross is level. And people don't have ups or chips with God. They don't have inside tracks. They tried to throw him off a cliff. That's how Jesus identified himself. What's he about? What's he doing? I am this person. And again, we see in chapter 8, he's still on mission. He hasn't experienced what sometimes we call mission drift. He's focused. He is proclaiming the gospel, the good news, the kingdom of God. And he's doing it 
Not just seeing its focus, but also its format. He's doing it in cities. He's doing it in villages. He's, he's not a respecter of persons, whether it's a small town, whether it's a large village. We've seen him dine with a tax collector and a Pharisee. We've seen him receive worship from a woman who was almost certainly either a prostitute or an adulteress. Jesus is willing to speak and bring this message to all who will hear from the city and in town, man, woman, child, Pharisee, sinners. We're seeing the breadth and the scope of Jesus' ministry. And then Luke introduces a list of women's names. And, and one of the things you've got to understand is that this is remarkable that Luke would insert this here. Remarkable. Especially in the gospel accounts, Luke, out of all the gospel accounts, gives the most prominence to women. Women being a part of Jesus' ministry. Jesus being, women being a part of his ministry team. Now, if you turn to chapter 9, one of the things we're setting up as well is the training of the apostles. And in verse, chapter 9, let's see where we're going, how this next chunk develops. In 9.1, he's going to send the 12 out. He called the 12 together, gave them power and authority over all the demons to cure diseases, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, still on mission, and to heal. Now, he doesn't send out these women, so their ministry is distinct from the apostles. They're not synonymous, yet they are with him. They are ministering to him and to them. Jesus Jesus had, had work for them to do as well. And they participated in, in his, his ministry. And briefly, let's just take a look at some of these women. Um, probably the most, one of the most famous women in the Bible is the first one listed here, Mary Magdalene. Although I think in many respects she gets a bad rap. Many people confuse her with the woman we just saw at the end of chapter 7. Many people assume Mary Magdalene is the woman who came into Simon's house. And we dealt with that a little bit last week. Very unlikely. It would be very strange and poor writing form for Luke to introduce her in chapter 7 and then not identify her when he names her a few verses later. Um, now, Luke and Mark 16 both reference her, both reference that demons are cast out of her. Yet nowhere in the Bible is that actually recorded. Her name, Magdalene, suggests that she was from the region of Magdala, a town of the Sea of Galilee's western shore, about three miles away north of Tiberias. And Mary is going to remain faithful to Jesus. And she's going to show up in the Gospels periodically. Um, It's recorded that she watched the crucifixion in both Matthew and Mark and in John, that she saw where Jesus was laid, and that she participated in the anointing of his body. This woman, who had seven demons cast out of her, was faithful to Jesus all the way through his, his death, his burial, his resurrection. And she'll appear again in Luke chapter 24 with Joanna. Joanna's going to show up as well in, in Luke chapter 24, 10. And it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary of James and the other women with them who told the apostles these things. What's remarkable here, though, is Luke is giving Theophilus. Remember, Theophilus is almost certainly a, a Roman official of some sort showing the already the fruit of the gospel. Because the gospel, we see, has infiltrated Herod's household. The gospel has infiltrated Herod's household because who is Susanna and Joanna? She's the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager. That word translated household manager could be an, is an administrative official in Herod's court. This is no, no low-level slave, household administrator. And almost certainly, Chusa is also, to some degree, a disciple of Christ because he's let his wife leave his side to go follow Jesus. I don't imagine Jesus would be encouraging this woman to rebel against her husband and leave him to follow him. So I'm assuming she's, she's with Jesus and the apostles with her, with her husband's consent, which means in Herod's own household. His household manager, at the very least, the wife of the household manager, is a follower of Christ. The gospel is, is spreading out. And Jesus has a gospel for, for sinners and for religious people. He's willing to eat and dine with Simon the Pharisee. He's willing to eat and dine with a tax collector. And the gospel is already making headways even beyond the edges of, of polite society into Herod's own household. It reminds me a little bit of the little name drop that Paul does at the end of Philippians. You can skim over this if you read the Philippians, but the very last verse of Philippians, Paul in jail in Rome says this, Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you. 
especially those of Caesar's household. Yeah, don't miss that. Philippians starts, Paul says, I'm in chains, my gospel's not chained. And at the end of the letter, one of the effects of Paul being caught up in Rome in a jail, well, his jailers have to listen to him. <laughs> and the gospel gets out into Caesar's own households. We're seeing the spread, the development. The last time in chapter 4, Jesus didn't have apostles. He installed them in chapter 6. And so Jesus is was a traveling preacher. Now he's a traveling preacher with an entourage, with a group, and, and it's made up of the disciples, which is that mixed group of people coming and going. It's got the apostles. Now it's got women of ministry with him. It's growing. It's developing. And so we see the development of Jesus' Galilean ministry. And then Luke moves into the parable of the sower. I only want to observe two things about the parable of the sower this morning. We'll look at it in depth next week. So I want to see two things. I want you to see who the parable is given to, and I want you to see who the appeal is given to. There's a contrast here. The parable is given to one group. The appeal is to another. Verse 4, when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable. So who's he giving this parable to? Blanks here. Spoken to a great crowd from many towns. Luke has been emphasizing how word has spread and spread and spread and spread and spread. And people from all over have come. And Jesus speaks to all of them the parable of the sower. And in the parable of the sower, he describes a, a sower sowing seed. And we see that the, the type of land, type of soil the seed falls upon determines its result, its fruit. Then at the end, in verse 8, he says something else. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. All I want you to notice is this. that The parable is given to the vast crowd, and yet within the vast crowd, Jesus is calling for a response only from a subset. What are those who don't have ears to hear supposed to do? He doesn't say. He's not talking to them now. I just want you to see that contrast, that the parable goes out to everybody, the call for response is a subset. And that's, that's what we're going to look at, because that's what Jesus is going to explain. Before we can dive into the parable of the sower, we've got to understand, why speak in parables at all? Why talk like this? So the appeal is only to those who have ears that hear. This is a common New Testament expression. I've given you all the references I found for it. There may be more. Used over a dozen times in the Gospels and Revelation. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What on earth does Jesus mean by that? Well, he's going to tell the disciples, because they have the same question. They don't understand it. And his disciples asked him what the parable meant. If you've ever been confused of what Jesus says, at least the disciples, sometimes you don't always want to be on the same side as the disciples, because they do some silly things at times, arguing about who's going to be the greatest. But at least the disciples said, Lord, what does this mean? Point three, Jesus explains why he speaks in parables. And this is where we'll spend most of our time this morning. When his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. Now pause right there. He's preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. So this parable ties in with the gospel he just taught. Don't miss that. Gospel of the kingdom of God. They get to hear the secrets of the kingdom of God. But for others, they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, what on earth is going on there? Jesus has just quoted, you may not know this, Isaiah chapter 6. I'd like you all to turn to Isaiah chapter 6, please. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, is the second most quoted Old Testament text by the New Testament. On Jesus' lips, it appears in every single gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the references are there. It is how Luke himself ends the book of Acts with the Apostle Paul speaking it. If you add in all the partial allusions to it, all of those he who has ears to hear, let him hear, which all tie in with Isaiah 6, it becomes the most quoted text in the New Testament. This is how Jesus defines his ministry. And, and I'll read as you're turning there just some of the citations from Matthew and from Mark. In Matthew, the disciples came to him. Why do you speak to them in parables? 
And he answered them, To you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dark. Dull. With their eyes they can barely hear, with their, with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they are closed, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ear, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. In John chapter 12, shifting from Jesus' public ministry to his private ministry, again the same text is referenced. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes, understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Same exact context. What on earth is going on? And Jesus says this, introducing not just the parable of the sower, but why he speaks in parables in general. So I think it's worth us pausing here to understand what's going on because Luke is framing this next section in Jesus' ministry. Jesus is, is using this as the explanation for why he speaks in parables in general at all. And if we don't understand what is going on here, admittedly, this is kind of challenging. If, if, if you're like me when you read this, this isn't what you feel comfortable reading and what you'd expect Jesus to say, and yet emphatically in all four Gospels he says it. Luke puts it on the lips of Paul, closing on Acts. What's going on? Let's take a look at the original context. And this is a very familiar passage. If you've ever been to a, um, a service, a commissioning service for a, mission, uh, for a missionary or a minister of the gospel, or frequently I hear this quoted when I go and someone's being made an elder or, or, or graduating from seminary, you'll, they'll read, they won't read up to verses 9 and 10, but they'll read right up to it. You're familiar with this. We'll start in verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew, and one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Who shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And that's usually where the commissioning services stop. Right there. Isn't that exciting? This is Isaiah's prophetic commissioning. He has a vision of the Lord. By the way, John 12 makes it clear he's seeing pre-incarnate Jesus. Yeah, check, check that with, with John chapter 12, verse 41. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory. And the his in John 12 is Jesus. Isaiah has a vision of the pre-incarnate Christ and his glory. And after first being cleansed, and God, what we learn is God is holy, holy, holy. And in response, Isaiah is not, not, not. And he says, woe unto me. And the Lord God takes his sin away. There's nothing he does. There's nothing he earns. This is grace. He's a, his sin is atoned for. He's cleansed from what comes out of the altar. And then the Lord says, who will go? And Isaiah says, send me. And then we get to our text. Verse 9, and he said, go and say to this people, what is Isaiah's message? What is it to be? Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. 
Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. That's, that's a pretty heavy message. It's a pretty heavy word. Isaiah then asks sort of a natural question. Oh, okay, Lord, um, for how long? Maybe he's thinking just a couple weeks where the people will listen, they'll repent. And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant, the houses without people, the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people from far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is in its stump. What he's saying in short is, until Nebuchadnezzar comes and drags everyone away, and the land is a ruin. Or, for Isaiah's case, all of your ministry. Isaiah doesn't live to see Nebuchadnezzar take them away to captivity. Takes them to place in the generation after him. What on earth is this? Some liberal commentators have suggested um, that Isaiah, at the end of his life, invented this passage to explain why he was a failure. I don't, I don't think that has a very high view of Scripture. I don't think that's accurate. But what do we do with this? And how do we square this message with a loving God? And how do we then do we put that message in Jesus' mouth and saying, oh, well, this is what I'm doing too. And this is why I speak in parables. We've got to move somewhat quickly here. He cites Isaiah 6, 8 through 10. Here, here's, here's the first thing to notice. And there is a missing word in your, in your blanks here. He, Isaiah and Jesus, these are true for both of them, because Jesus is quoting this. He's identifying with this. What Luke is doing here, we've got one Isaiah strand entered in already, Isaiah 61. Jesus says, that's me. I'm the guy spoken of in Isaiah 61. I'm that Messiah. I'm that herald. I'm that one who proclaims. But I'm also standing in the tradition of, in the stream of Isaiah 6. And, that, and that's why I think he, he introduces this next break, this section, as this new theme gets developed as well. In addition, alongside of Jesus' ministry to proclaim the gospel to the poor, the oppressed, the blind, he's also, first blank, he was to announce and effect, that's your missing word, announce and effect the hardening of the people. It's unmistakable. Isaiah's message to the people is keep on hearing but do not understand, keep on seeing but do not perceive, and then make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes. That's being done to them. Unmistakably. This is a tough text, and we aren't going to get out of it by not looking at what it says. He first tells them to be blind, and then someone's making them blind. What on earth is going on with this? Is this is God being capricious? Just lashing out with a judgment like this? I don't think so at all. What's interesting is these metaphors, the metaphors for what's going on of, of seeing and not seeing and hearing and not hearing and becoming blind and becoming deaf. And, and I owe a great deal of, of help from this to, to a man named Greg Beale, who's done some work on this. He spoke at my college and he's written on this. And what he argues, and I think he argues convincingly, is, is in the rest of Scripture, and especially in Isaiah, to turn to Isaiah 42, wherever we see that imagery of spiritual sensory deprivation, spiritual sensory failure. Not real ears not hearing, not real eyes not seeing. But wherever we see that, we're dealing not with just any old sin. We're not dealing with adultery or murder or theft. We're dealing with a very specific sin. Good Isaiah 42. Pick it up in verse um, 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. Hear you deaf and look you blind that you may see who is blind but my servant or deaf as my messenger whom I send. I, mean, I don't think he's speaking of the Messiah here. Israel is elsewhere spoken of as his servant. In other words, I'm not talking about pagan nations. I'm talking about my people. Who's blind as my servant, or as deaf as my messenger who I send? Who is as blind as my dedicated one, or as blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His eyes are open, his ears are open, and he does not hear. Now turn to Isaiah 44. 
again, we'll see the combination of sensory deprivation, spiritual sensory misfunction, or whatever you want to call it, and idolatry. And here we have, it would be funny if it wasn't so horrific, so sad. The foolishness of idolatry shown is, as the Lord describes how, how much work goes into making an idol, you got to go find a tree, and you got to water the tree, and you got to cut down the tree, and you got to get a craftsman, and you got to get a metal worker, and you got to get someone with a saw, and you got to get someone with sand, and he goes through it all. And what he, what he does in this passage is he follows that part of the tree you turn into this idol, but part of the tree just turns into firewood. Verse 12, the ironsmith takes a cutting tool, works it over the coals, he fashions it with a hammer, works it with a strong arm, he becomes hungry, his strength fails, he drinks no water and is faint, the carpenter stretches out a line, he marks it out with a pencil, he shapes it with planes and marks it with a compass. What he's showing is just how much human effort and human work and human sweat goes into making this thing. This is no easy task. This idol doesn't make itself people spending lots of energy, lots of work, make this. He shapes it into a figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell on a house. He cuts down cedars or he chooses a cypress tree or an oak and lets it grow strong among the trees of the forest. He plants a cedar and the rain nourishes it. Then it becomes fuel for a man. He takes a part of it and warms himself. He kindles a fire and breaks bread. He also makes a god and worships it. He makes it an idol and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire. Over the half he eats, he roasts and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I've seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and falls down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They know not. Now here, watch. Nor do they discern, for he has shut their eyes so that they cannot see. And their hearts, so they cannot understand. No one considers, nor is their knowledge or discernment to say, half of it I burned in the fire. I also baked bread on the coals. I roasted meat and have eaten. And I shall make the rest of it into an abomination. Shall I fall down before a block of wood? He feeds on ashes. A deluded heart has led him astray. And he cannot deliver himself and say, is there not a lie in my right hand? I could show you other examples. I'll just use these two to suffice in Isaiah, that where you use that seeing but not seeing, blinded eyes, deadened heart, deaf ears, and a dumb mouth, it's connected with idol worship. And if you study back through Isaiah 1 through 6, the point is this, God is not being capricious. It's not as though Israel just committed one sin and God said, okay, that's it, I'm going to harden you. Rather, all throughout Israel, idolatry has become rampant as they're worshiping other gods. It's been the besetting sin of Israel since the golden calf at Sinai to the conquest of Canaan. You go to the end of Joshua. Three times Joshua says, get the idols away from you. And the people just come back and say, we're going to worship God. And says, yeah, 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 it's not going to work that way. You can't worship God and idols. Get rid of your idols. And they come back, no, we're really going to worship the Lord. But never once, the end of Joshua, do they actually get rid of the idols. And you read Judges and they follow them right on through. Again and again, being ensnared by idols. And here Israel given over to idol worship, and they've become hardened, and this is a judgment. They can only go so far, and Isaiah is being pronounced and commissioned to give that judgment. So the blank, this is a judgment on the people's idolatry. This is a judgment on the people's idolatry. It's fitting, and it's right. So why is it then, that when we speak of idolatry in the Bible so regularly, so frequently, the imagery is of the seeing but not seeing and having ears but not hearing. There's a reason for it. Turn, turn to Psalm 115. And I know we're doing a big Old Testament study, but this is all tied up in what Jesus is saying, and it's all tied up in understanding what he means as he introduces the parables and why he speaks in parables. Psalm 115, verses 5 through 8. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. Speaking of idols here. They got painted on eyes. They got painted on mouth. They got carved ears. But they don't see. They don't hear. They don't speak. They got noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. They do not make a sound in their throat. Now look at verse 8. Those who make them become 
like them. So do all who trust in them. That's the point. You familiar with the concept of the lex talionos? Eye for an eye. The, the, the punishment is fitting of the crime. You, you rob someone of their sight, you lose your sight. You take someone's life, your life is forfeit. You, you steal their sheep, you, you lose the sheep. You, you want to abandon the worship of the true God and worship idols. God says, okay. You'll, you'll start to be conformed to their image. You'll, you'll start to resemble them. And this language referring to people who see don't see and hear that don't hear. They're like the idols they worship. They are as spiritually dead and as spiritually lifeless and as spiritually blind as these nice-looking hunks of wood that look like they can see and look like they can hear and look like they can talk but cannot. And so in using that language in Isaiah 6, the judgment is these people have been worshiping their idols for so long, they now resemble them. They've been conformed not to the image of God, but to the image of the things they worship. One, one other example, nearly word for word, Psalm 135 says the same exact thing. You just turn there a few pages, Psalm 135, verses 16 to 18. Again, speaking of idols. Actually, I'll take it from verse 15. The idols of the nations are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. They have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Nor is there any breath in their mouths. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. So now you go back and you read Isaiah 6. With that in mind, what is the Lord saying when Isaiah goes to them and says, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull, their ears heavy, blind their eyes. What he's saying is, these are people wholly committed to, conformed to, shaped by, and now resembling idols. And God is saying, you've gone too far. There is no coming back from this. There is no turning from this. Paul might say in the New Testament, to whomever you present yourself as a servant, to that you become a slave. And so now, that is your fate. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come. You're going to be deported. A remnant will survive. Isaiah is pronouncing this judgment. Here's point three. And here's the biblical concept. And this is, this is it's in quotations, because this is, this is Greg Beale's thesis of his book. It's pithy. I didn't think I could improve upon it, so I just thought, okay, I'll just quote it and give him credit for it. But we resemble what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. We resemble what we revere either for ruin or for restoration. This is, this is a theme repeatedly demonstrated in Scripture over and over and over. It's the basis of what Paul's getting at in Romans 12. And he says, don't be, don't be conformed to the image of this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. You're, you're being pushed into a mold. You're becoming more like something. And what you worship, what you love, what you're building your life around, you will begin to reflect that image. You are made to reflect God's image. You are made to love him, to behold him, to look upon him. And according to 2 Corinthians chapter 3, as we behold his glory, we are changed from one image of glory to another. As we behold and worship and revere him, guess what? We become more like him. But you want to behold and worship and revere other things? You're going to start getting conformed to that image. Because idolatry is not limited to carved statues. Four times in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. Coveting. Everything the advertising industry is trying to well up within you is idolatry. And what Jesus is saying then, if you turn back to Luke, what's going on here? What Jesus is saying is he is well aware of the idolatry of his people. In their hearts, they are not God worshipers. Now, what's striking is that Luke introduces it here. Because up to this point in the narrative, the opposition to Jesus has been minimal. We've had a negative experience in Nazareth. We've got a group of Pharisees who are trying to trap him, but nothing's said that they're trying to kill him yet. There's no conspiracy. There's no guards being sent out for him. What we do hear is the crowds, and the word is spreading bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger crowds. On the whole, it's looking pretty good. 
But don't forget that Luke wrote to Theophilus to give him certainty concerning the things he had been taught. Theophilus knows how the story ends. Luke assumes we do too. And what he's pointing out to us is that Jesus was not trying in one sense to to nationally have something happen that failed. Rather, Jesus knows the hearts of the Israelites, and he knows that the majority of them will be crying out for his blood in just under three years. The majority of them are not worshipers of the living God. They're worshiping something else. And yes, he is here to proclaim light and liberty and freedom and good news to those who recognize their blindness, to those who recognize their poverty, to those who recognize their captivity. But he's also here to, to bring a profound judgment on those who worship other gods. That's how Paul cites this in Acts 28. This is the end of Acts. Just listen to this. When they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in great numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, to Jews, testifying to them the kingdom of God, right? So Paul's in Rome, Jews are coming. He's testifying to them to the kingdom of God, trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and the prophets. So the entire day, the apostle Paul spends in an apologetic Bible study showing him, look, look here in Deuteronomy, look here in Exodus, look here in Isaiah, look here in, in Hosea, just all through the Bible, Jesus is the Christ, he is the Messiah. Some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. Disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right to say to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, go to this people and say, you will indeed hear but never understand. You will indeed see but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull. With their ears they can barely hear. With their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. See, Isaiah was commissioned with this mission because a massive judgment was coming in the deportation to Babylon. And Jesus is saying, in addition to reaching the lost sheep of Israel, in addition to, to proclaiming this good news, he is announcing this very same judgment, a greater judgment. Nebuchadnezzar just took him away from the land. The gospel will be taken from Israel given to a nation bearing its fruit. Yes, yes, a remnant of Israelites will, will be saved. But by and large, God's chosen people have rejected him. And I don't believe that's the end of the story for them. You can read Romans 9, 10, 11 and see how, how it ultimately ends. But, but already in Luke, Jesus is identifying with that theme as well. Because ultimately, according to John 1, he came to his own, and his own did not receive them. So we get back to our foundational question. Why did Jesus speak in parables? And I've heard well-meaning people pray, Jesus was such a good teacher. It wasn't high and lofty. He put it down on the low shelf for people. He used common, everyday agricultural metaphors so that even the simplest among them could understand. It's so important to have good illustrations in your sermons. Jesus was masterful with it. No, he did it to confound them. That's what he says. I'm speaking this way to hide meaning. from those who do not have eyes to see and ears to hear. It's it's what he says. Why do you speak in parables? Verse 10, to you it's been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but to others they are in parables, so that, purpose statement, so that seeing they may not or might not see, and hearing they may not understand. I'm speaking this way so that they won't see and so that they won't understand. Jesus' parables are kind of like tinted glass, From one vantage point, you can see clearly through it. Through another vantage point, it is opaque. That's why I spoke in parables. This is because God is sovereign. Now, Now, point four here. 
you might be tempted to say, well, that's, that's not fair. If people can't see, if people are blind, and if people are deaf spiritually, then it can't be their fault. We're tempted to think that way. The reason why so much of the, of the Western church, the church in America, has a hard time dealing with these types of statements of spiritual inability, or what Luther, in his, in his debates with Erasmus, would call the bondage of the will, is because we, we believe that if people are unable, if people are this blind, and if God is, is, is aware of that, then they lose their culpability. Here's your last point. I'm going to try to argue. Inability does not remove guilt. It is our guilt. Inability does not remove our guilt. It is our guilt. Let me try to give you two illustrations to try to make what I'm saying clear. I want you to imagine that I hire Greg Rolak to do some yard work for me while I'm gone on vacation. And we, we agree upon a price and what he needs to do. He needs to, to mow and he needs to do some work and put some seed down and fertilizer. And as I'm getting ready to leave, I say, Greg, now be careful. There's a pit over in the corner of my yard and I've marked it out and I've put some cones around it. But you need to stay away from that. It's dangerous. You could fall in and get trapped. Just don't go anywhere near that. You don't need to do any work by that pit. Just leave it alone. And I get in the car with my family and we drive off. And the second he sees that we're gone, he runs over and jumps in the pit. And I come back two weeks later and there's a rather hungry and sad and forlorn Greg at the bottom of the pit. And as I'm looking around, my yard's overgrown. There's dead patches of grass where there's been no fertilizer. And I'm saying, I walk over and I look down at the pit and say, Greg, I paid you. We agreed. You've done nothing of what you said you would do. Why? Why have you not kept your word? Why have you not done what I paid you to do? And Greg says, you can't blame me. I couldn't do it. I'm in this pit. Being in the pit is his guilt. It's his fault he's in the pit. That's not an excuse. I warned him of it. Or another example that may come closer to home. We recognize that as people give themselves to drugs or alcohol or pornography, they can reach a state where they have become slaves, where they no longer possess within them, or at least their experience tells them, they no longer have the power to say no, right? And that's why we've developed all this disease language, right? It's not a sin issue, it's a sickness. Because we, we feel bad. We, we recognize in this moment, this person doesn't seem to have ability. They don't seem to be able to do otherwise. But that's precisely their guilt. What, what I mean is this. The difference between that person and the person who dabbles with drugs or drabbles with alcohol but can put it down is this person for a much longer period of time willingly over and over gave themselves to it. It's the thousands of choices over the years before that account for their current situation. And in fact, that's precisely what makes their guilt. Look what a slave this person is to pornography. Look at what a slave this person is to drugs or alcohol. It is their guilt. The degree of their slavery is precisely the thing that evidences the degree to which they gave themselves to it. Likewise, the degree of our blindness, our deafness, our inability to hear and see what God is saying is directly related to the degree to which we have given ourselves to other gods. It is our guilt. It doesn't remove our guilt. John Piper, speaking on one of the other passages that cite this first, John 9. I'll read, I'll read to you John 9. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see and those who see may become blind. Now there's the two themes of Jesus' ministry, what he, what he introduced in chapter 4 and what he has just introduced in chapter 8. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. And here's Piper's comment. But in fact, they don't see. They are blind. And their guilt, Jesus says, remains. Behind that little phrase, you say that you see, is the profound statement of Jesus about our accountability. In reality, they do not see. In reality, they are blind. And their guilt remains. They are accountable. Which means that there's a kind of blindness a blindness rooted in willful rebellion against the light of God 
that is moral, spiritual blindness, not a physical one. We are blind because we love darkness, John 3, 19. We are blind because we don't want to see the light or be guided by the light. And this blindness does not diminish our guilt or remove our accountability. It is part of our guilt. It's John Piper on this. So where does that leave us then? If we're blind and deaf, because all of us came to this world sinful, where, where does this leave us? It leaves us needing divine grace. We'll end here. Jesus introduced this to them by saying, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God. It wasn't because they were better. It wasn't because they were more righteous. Levi was a tax collector. Paul says he was the worstest of sinners. Yet God's sovereign grace, by God's grace, he, he granted sight. Second Corinthians puts it this way. Even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So what's the problem? Why are people perishing? They're not seeing the beauty of Christ in the gospel. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4. Why, do, why are people perishing? Because they're, they're blinded. There's a veil. Okay, what's to be done about that, Paul? Do they work really hard to pull off the veil? No. Verse 6, God who says, let light shine out of darkness, this is a reference to Genesis 1, where God, prompted by nobody for no other reason than his own purposes, joy, and glory, said, let there be light. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, what that means is if you see these truths, if you see beauty in the gospel, if you have ears to hear, it's not because you're better than these other people. It's because God has been sovereignly gracious to you. Because God spoke into your heart, light. Because God removed a veil. What that also means, if God is powerful and sovereign to do that, is we can beseech him on the behalf of others or even ourselves, to do the same thing. We can pray along with the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18, O oh Lord, would you open my eyes that I might behold wondrous things in your law. Now we've gone over time. You thought we have a hard time covering, filling this whole thing out, and I'm looking at the clock. We can pick this up next week. But it's just understand, why is it that people aren't interested in spiritual things? Why is it that people can sit and read the Bible listen to good teaching, good preaching, and be uninterested. It's because they worship and love something else. We bear the image of what we worship. We will be conformed into the image of what we revere. The biblical hope is that we'll be conformed to the image of Christ. But make no mistake, you will bear the mark of what you serve. You wear, reflect, and resemble what you be revere. You will become what you behold, either for restoration or for ruin. Let's pray. Lord God, we just thank you that you have opened our blind eyes, that you have unstopped our deaf ears, that you have taken our hearts of stone and given us living hearts, that you have put your spirit into us, that you have spoken light and life to us. Lord, it's just my prayer. If there's anyone here today who that veil remains, that you would remove it you would open eyes to see the light of the glory of your son, that you would announce that freedom to captives, that you would announce that good news to the poor, that you would do that work here in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen. You are dismissed.